here. Now, broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Happy Thanksgiving. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811. 877-381-3811. The cleanup hitter. You thought you heard about it all today, right? Now, be honest with yourselves. Who was pounding away at the Congress? Pounding away at the Congress before anybody else in the last few weeks. On the sexual harassment issue. As soon as they started talking about passing a resolution in the Senate, an anti-sexual harassment resolution, I said, okay, now we've got to do some focusing on Congress. Same with the House of Representatives. And it went all over the media when I said that McConnell and Ryan should step down. Because if sexual harassment is this pervasive in Congress, then the people who run Congress should leave. And even today, Mitch McConnell's barely heard from. Barely heard from. You ask him about Roy Moore, he can't control himself. You ask him about Franken, he uh, goes back into his shell. I also said yesterday that referring this matter of Franken to the Ethics Committee was their way of either killing it or just sending it into a black hole. Remember that? So we're going to discuss this at some length. And there's also Kristen Gillibrand, who turns out is a fraud. She's a fraud. Now, she's been leading the efforts on sexual harassment in the military and so forth and so on, but turns out she's a fraud. Now she says Bill Clinton should have resigned over Lewinsky, and, and yet she was close to the Clintons. And Bill Clinton came and campaigned for her. Bill Clinton endorsed her in her first run in the Democrat primary over others. He raised money for her. Well, the circumstances, you know, the environment has changed. The environment didn't change. As I posted on my social sites, Bill Clinton was impeached. There was a trial. He was held in contempt. Obviously, a goodly part of the nation understood that what he had done was wrong. And not just the underlying offenses, but the obstruction of justice and the perjury. As Ms. Gillibrand's party and the media were trashing Ken Starr, who was trying to get to the bottom of it. Remember that? You can't talk about a special counsel like Mueller. What's that? That's like Stalin, says the idiot Scarborough. Meanwhile, Ken Starr was brutalized, attacked, and on and on and on. Getting a little bit ahead of myself. And I'm also going to ask you a series of questions later today. And then there's Steve Mnuchin, the Treasury Secretary. This guy's a very wealthy man, Goldman Sachs, liberal from Manhattan, like too many of them. And he's doing his best Marx class warfare claptrap. If you uh, live in a high tax state and you earn over a million dollars, yes, your taxes are going up. Yeah, they're going up. Greatest tax cut in the history of man. Uh, baloney. And what these guys don't understand is your intelligence, which they're trying to dumb down. It can't be dumbed down. You understand class warfare and what a poison it is. 
You understand there's successful people who invest and create jobs, right? And you also understand that the government is filled with waste and fraud and left-wing progressive programs, and the money's better spent in the private sector. That's how we get most of our new inventions. That's how we get most of our new products, most of our new services. It's where all the entrepreneurs are. So we have a lot to cover. Now, if you're a quasi-professional radio host, you know, I like to say that I'm a professional radio listener and a quasi-professional radio host, because all radio hosts are quasi-professionals, really. You want to know the truth. It's like sitting around the table on Thanksgiving and talking. And talking. The only difference is, you know, there's no food in your mouth. So, but I want to get into some of these things. Now, I want to get into the, uh, we'll get into this now, the, the Franken matter, the Congress, and so forth. Then we're going to move into uh, the, uh, the tax reform issue, because it's not really tax reform. And then we're going to get into some questions I have for you. Why don't I ask you the questions now so you can ponder them? Does that make sense, Mr. Producer? I'm going to ask you these questions now. Think about them. And we'll go back to them in hour three. Okay? If you're still with me, and I hope you are. It's Friday. Why not? I confess that I often wonder... No, no, I haven't fondled anybody. I confess that I often wonder what America will become in 50 or 100 years. This is on the jacket, the back, of Rediscovering Americanism. What will the future hold for our children and our grandchildren? Will they be free, happy, prosperous, independent, and secure? What will be left of our constitutional system? Will the Bill of Rights have the force of law? What about property rights? Will they matter? How many will remember or care to learn about our founding principles as concisely, brilliantly set forth in the Declaration of Independence? How many remember or care today? And what of the civil society or the social compact? Will it have frayed beyond repair? Will we have been conquered from within as Thomas Jefferson and Joseph Story and Abraham Lincoln feared might be our fate? Will we have avoided the doom of Athens and Rome? If we are honest with ourselves, we must agree that the outcome is unclear. The reason? A century or so of progressive government and schemes targeting the uniqueness of America, including its founding principles and republican system. Future generations will look back on what we've done, and they'll know the answers. They will draw their judgments about this generation and record them in their own history books. What lessons will they have learned? What will they say about us? Will they say that we were a wise and conscientious people who understood and appreciated the blessings of our existence and surroundings and prudentially and conscientiously cared for them? Or will they say we were a self-indulgent and inattentive people? easily shepherded in one direction or another, who stole the future from our own children and generations yet born and squandered an irreplaceable heritage. It's a lot to think about, isn't it? It's a lot to think about. 
And now we swing back, as they say. Al Franken. Not a single member of the United States Senate has asked that Al Franken be expelled. Not a single member of the United States Senate has introduced a resolution that Al Franken be expelled. It takes two-thirds of them. Why is that? Why is that? Why, why are they not seeking to expel Al Franken? Due process? Now, we know they don't believe in due process because they told us they don't believe in due process. Where's Cory Gardner? Cory Gardner was out there, the, the Republican from Colorado. He was out there almost on day one carrying Mitch McConnell's water, talking about expelling Roy Moore if he's elected. Okay, that's their standard, ladies and gentlemen, expelling Roy Moore if he's elected. Got it. Well, the allegations are different. Excuse me. That doesn't matter. We're talking about a process, right? A process. If the process is no process, then why is there a process for Al Franken? And we have the goods on Al Franken. And Al Franken is essentially confessed. Not so with Roy Moore. Of course their situations are different. And I'm not a special pleader for either. But I am. I am going to look at them and analyze them with you. Our buddy Ben Shapiro, who we have guest hosts here from time to time, he took a look at the statistics when it comes to the Ethics Committee. And he points out, of course, that the Democrats are responding quite differently in the case of Al Franken than they are in the case of Roy Moore. He points out that Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer has called for an ethics probe. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell called for an ethics probe. Democratic Whip Dick Durbin, Kirsten Gillibrand, Claire McCaskill, Amy Blosher, uh, many others, Blobachar, excuse me, have called for uh, ethics investigations. Why? Because that's where you go to kill matters. He took a look. He took a look at a USA Today report. And they looked over a period of nine years. Between 2007 and 2016, the Senate Ethics Committee imposed zero sanctions against anyone. Zero. Despite 613 allegations and 75 preliminary investigation, zero. The committee's activity reports, according to USA Today, indicate that in nearly every case, Allegations are dismissed because there are not enough facts to prove wrongdoing. 13 of 55 cases last year alone. Or there's no Senate rule governing the alleged activity. 36 of 55 cases. In seven cases last year, the Ethics Committee carried out preliminary inquiries. Five of those were dismissed as inadvertent or minor technical violations. None of those cases was made public by the committee. None of them. So a Senate Ethics Committee investigation is where allegations go to die. That's why they're all calling for a Senate Ethics investigation, including Al Franken himself. It's a far cry, Shapiro points out, and we've pointed out many times, from Republican calls for Roy Moore to step away from his campaign or threats to refuse him a Senate seat altogether. So this is the way the Democrats... Kick it down the road with the help of McConnell and the Republicans. People will forget. And then he'll run for re-election. Think that's fair? 
Al Franklin should resign or he should be expelled. He's already admitted to the allegations, at least in, in substance. And he's already... The photo, I mean, what are you going to do? Are you going to investigate the photo? Is there any doubt about the photo? No, there's no doubt about the photo. And then we have Kirsten Gillibrand, and this is what's wrong with the United States Senate. This is what's wrong with these politicians. She's been out there pounding away at the, uh, uh, at the military for sexual harassment violations. She's been out there, uh, you know, co-authored with uh, Chuck Grassley, the, uh, the resolution against sexual harassment and so forth. But it turns out she's an enormous hypocrite. And among those pointing it out are the Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton supporters. All the times that she campaigned with Clinton, all the times that he helped raise funds for her. Uh, there's a fellow over at Powerline, Paul Marengoff, who's uh, done a pretty good job of analyzing this. And more than once, at least twice. Is there anything in the news more farcical, he says, than liberals and feminists saying it's time for a reckoning with Bill Clinton? Clinton was credibly accused of severe sexual misconduct by several women. One of them, Juanita Broderick, alleged that Clinton raped her. Her claim was highly credible inasmuch as she complained contemporaneously to five people. Clinton also admitted, after brazenly lying about it, to having sex with Monica Lewinsky. The White House intern was barely out of her teens at the time. If Roy Moore, against whom no allegation of sexual misconduct has been conclusively established, writes Marengoff, is unfit to occupy one of 100 Senate seats, then surely Bill Clinton was unfit to serve as our president. Yet Democrats and feminists rallied to Clinton's defense while shrugging off, if not applauding, the fact that the Clinton machine spearheaded by Hillary demonized Clinton's female victims. Did any Democrat or liberal media type say, I believe the women? If so, I don't recall it. During Clinton's post-presidency, Democrats and feminists continue to ignore his predatory sexual history. Even now, when that behavior is mentioned, some like Ruth Marcus, columnist, former news writer, accuse those who bring it up of, what aboutism? Let's be clear. Responding to the allegations against Moore by citing Clinton isn't a defense of Moore. It's an indictment of Clinton defenders for intellectual dishonesty. Unless Ruth Marcus will admit to intellectual dishonesty, she needs a substantive answer to the what about question. Some on the left realize this. And some on the left are pretending that they're now offended by conduct. They not only accept it, but they defend it to the last man and woman. And he goes on in another piece, does Marin Goff at Powerline. Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, who holds the seat formerly occupied by Hillary Clinton, said that Bill Clinton should have resigned the presidency after his inappropriate relationship with Monica Lewinsky came to light. That's mighty enlightened of her. What took her so long to reach or articulate this view? The answer is, it took the fall of Clinton's plus a crucial Senate race in which the Republican is being accused of serious sexual misconduct. We know that Gillibrand would never have called out Bill Clinton if he still wielded influence. We know this because she didn't when he did. To the contrary, just last year, she wrote, quote, I was truly honored that President Bill Clinton campaigned for me in my first run for Congress in 2006. Attempting to explain her alleged change of heart, she said, quote, Things have changed today. 
And I think under those circumstances, there should be a very different reaction. BS. I'm throwing the BS flag. I'm not done. I'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Thanksgiving. Is it your view that the President Clinton should have stepped down at that time, given the allegations? I w- yes, th- I think that is the appropriate response, but um, I think things have changed today, and I think under those circumstances there should be a very different reaction, and I think in light of this conversation, we should have a very different conversation about President Trump and a very different conversation about allegations against him. She is... Uh exposing herself as a complete charlatan and a disgrace. And I've been noting this, noticing this all day long from liberals who appear on Fox, liberals who are hosts on CNN and MSNBC. They drag Trump into this in order to defend Franken. They drag Trump into this. Oh, what's the difference? What's the difference? Uh, we, what's the difference? I think we have a photo, don't we, of Al Franken with his hands on a woman's breasts? A woman who's come forward, given her name, did a press conference. I love the way the left, they, they say, you know, we have, to, we have to analyze again how we reacted to Bill Clinton. And what do they want to talk about? Trump. We're not buying it. I'll be right back. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Thanksgiving. Mark Levin, a champion of freedom. You know, you're one of the greatest champions of freedom in this country, if not in the English-speaking world, Mark. Call Mark at 877-381-3811. Good man, that Mike Pence. No question about that. I want to go on with uh, Kirsten Gillibrand and show you what a complete another fraud she is. And as I say, Marengoff's done a great job over, over there at Powerline. And you should know, before she was a senator, she was a congressman from New York. She was a moderate Democrat. She was opposed to most gun control initiatives. Uh, she was a fairly fiscal conservative. And the minute she became a senator, she lurched hard left. And she wants to run for president in 2020. So this is who she is. She's a fraud. Attempting to explain her alleged change of heart about Clinton, Gillibrand said, Mr. Producer, hit it. Is it your view that, that the President Clinton should have stepped down at that time, given the allegations? I w- yes, th- I think that is the appropriate response, but um, I think things have changed today, and I think under those circumstances there should be a very different reaction. Well, let's stop a moment. What things have changed? Having oral sex in the Oval Office? Really? Have our morals changed, ladies and gentlemen? Uh, you're accused of rape. They really change that much in 20 years? I don't think so. What a disgrace. The more I listen to her. What an absolute fraud. Go ahead. This conversation, we should have a very different conversation about President Trump and a very different conversation about... So see, 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 the, uh, see the, the opportunism there? We should have a very different conversation about President Trump... What a hack. What an absolute disgusting hack. Go ahead. 
Now, as uh, Marengoff points out, really, really, our our uh, sensibilities have changed so much since the 1990s. And he says, uh, but have they changed substantially since 2016 when she gushed all over Bill Clinton for campaigning with her? 2016, one year ago? She's not guilty just of hypocrisy, he says, but of intellectual dishonesty. She will throw a has-been ex-president who can no longer help her under the bus in exchange for having a go at it at a president that she hates. If President Trump has sex with a White House intern and lies about it or commits serious sexual misconduct of any kind while serving as president, we should have a different conversation, Ms. Gillibrand, but not with you. You're not to be taken seriously. Because when that actually occurred and it was the president of your party, you not only kept your mouth shut, but in the later years, you had his support, he helped raise money for you, and you had photographs with him, and you were excited about them. You even put them on your social sites. And I'm not the only one. Maringoff's not the only one to see this. The former, uh, let's see, senior advisor to Hillary Clinton, Philippe Reigns. Philippe Reigns says that when Hillary Clinton was Secretary of State, this is what he tweeted, Ken Starr spent $70 million on a consensual act Oral, of oral sex. This is what he writes. Senate voted to keep POTUS, William Jefferson Clinton. But not enough for you, Senator Gillibrand. Over 20 years, you took the Clinton's endorsements, money, and seat. Hypocrite. Interesting strategy for 2020 primaries. Best of luck. This guy reigns as a bad guy, but he's right about Gillibrand, says Goff, and he's correct. He's correct. So she's not to be taken seriously. She's a hack and a fraud and a hypocrite and intellectually dishonest. And even many Democrats see this. Even many Democrats see this. And again, as pointed out, it was only a year ago that Bill Clinton campaigned with her. It was only a year ago that he helped raise money for her. It was only a year ago that she was so happy. Big smile on her face, standing with Clinton during a campaign event. What changed? Well, she wants to be president, so she has absolutely no principles. She's a chameleon. I'm honored to be traveling around with uh, President Clinton, campaigning for Hillary Clinton, letting New Yorkers know why. This is last year. This is last year. This year, it's yes, of course he should have resigned. Our, our sensibilities, our morals, our, our understanding, our belief systems, have they've progressed. Not yours, Ms. Gillibrand. Not yours. So I have some questions for Ms. Gillibrand, junior senator from New York. Did you not believe Juanita Broderick's allegation that Bill Clinton raped her? Did you not believe Kathleen Willey's allegation that Bill Clinton sexually assaulted her in the Oval Office? Much like that photo with Al Franken. Did you not believe Paula Jones when she said he dropped his pants and said a few things to her and she was a state employee? Did you not believe that, Ms. Gillibrand? 
Let me ask you this, Ms. Gillibrand. Do you think Bill Clinton needed and or needs anti-sexual harassment training right now? Let me ask her this question, and let me ask Mitch McConnell this question. If Bill Clinton were to run for the Senate today, would they say they wouldn't seat him? Would they say as soon as he's elected they would expel him? Given all we know, he was held in contempt by a federal judge after all. He did lose his Supreme Court license for a period of time after all. He was fined after all. And he didn't challenge the contempt uh, ruling of the judge, Susan Weber Wright, in Arkansas, Little Rock, Arkansas, because he knew in order to defend, while he could provide his so-called evidence, evidence would be provided against him. He tried to fix the outcome of this litigation by lying under oath at a deposition where the judge attended the deposition to personally oversee it. So I would ask Ms. Gillibrand, if Bill Clinton were running for the Senate today, would you argue that the minute he sets foot in the Senate, the Senate should move to expel him? And where's Mitch McConnell these days, ladies and gentlemen? Isn't he awfully quiet? Talks an awful lot about Roy Moore, how they're strategizing, what they're doing, and just blows this thing off with Frank. Well, well, Senator Ethics Committee, the Ethics Committee over there, bipartisan. Hey, let me tell you, we got four Democrats, four Republicans over there, over in the Ethics Committee. They're going to do their job. They'll do their job over there. So they circle the wagons to protect. Franken. Ladies and gentlemen, that is what they're doing. Let me tell you what they're telling Franken, these Democrats. I surmise, but I think I'm right. I tell them, look, we got to condemn you in public, but in private, we know. We'll send it over there to the Ethics Committee. Even that schlub McConnell, he, he's not going to picket scabs here. Don't worry about it. He's not going to picket scabs here. Do not believe the liberals and the Democrats when they say it's time to reevaluate Clinton. Bill Clinton. It's time to reevaluate it. Because what they're saying is, you saw a little bit of this from Gillibrand, is we want to destroy Donald Trump. Most of these people have no conscience. I'm sorry, it's true. Most of these people who are radical progressives have a totalitarian mindset. It's all about power, the accumulation of power, the retention of power, and exercising that power. And exercising that power. The other day I was in Washington, and I was walking past the White House and the old executive office, but I was taking a look at those buildings. And I had worked in those buildings many, many years ago in the Reagan administration, as well as other buildings, but anyway. And I thought to myself, these progressive leftist radical politicians in the Democrat Party and in the media, they believe that those buildings belong to them. They are appalled that Trump is in the White House. They are appalled that Pence is in the White House. They are appalled that the old executive office building and all the offices there are controlled by the Trump-Pence president-vice presidency. They cannot believe it. They are infuriated by it. They've lost all their contacts for the most part. But they're really, really upset. They believe these buildings 
These buildings, the White House proper and the old executive office building, belong to them. That this was some kind of a hostile takeover. Every time they walk by these buildings, that's what they're thinking. That they're the possession of the left, that the possession of the Democrat Party. Let me tell you why Kirsten Gillibrand's probably the worst of the worst. Or Kristen Gillibrand, I apologize. It was probably the worst of the worst. Because now she's using sexual harassment in a partisan political manner. And isn't it interesting, the Washington Post doesn't write about that, the New York Times doesn't write about that, Politico, it's not reported that way, and network news, cable news, satellite news. In this one statement, I'll play it one more time, she makes it clear that she wants to use the sexual harassment, which is apparently pervasive according to CNN, on the Capitol as a way to attack the President of the United States. Play it again, Mr. Producer. Cut 11. Go. Is it your view that, that the President Clinton should have stepped down at that time, given the allegations? I, yes, I think that is the appropriate response, but um, I think things have changed today, and I think under those circumstances there should be a very different reaction, and I think in light of this conversation, we should have a very different conversation about President Trump and a very different conversation about allegations against him. See? She's a hack. And she's a liar. Because, as, as was pointed out, she campaigned with Trump, excuse me, she campaigned with Clinton a year ago. The change in circumstances, what? In less than a year's time? So you should dismiss her. And yet, she is now using this issue of sexual harassment as a political tool. And she knows that the media will fall right behind her. And the media have fallen right behind her. Constantly. Constantly. Um, Huckabee Sanders is being asked, what's the president's position on that, Roy Moore? What's the president's position? What's the president on the president of the president of the... What's the president have to do with this? Nothing. And just because Mitch McConnell's trying to drag the president into it, trying to get him to do his dirty work, trying to push Roy Moore out or push Roy Moore in or whatever the hell they're doing, just because he's trying to drag the pres president won't be dragged in. And he shouldn't be. They're saying what I've been saying and what others are saying. The people of Alabama are perfectly capable of making these decisions themselves. Without the Washington, D.C., New York City media telling them what to think and do, without some of the pseudo-conservatives lecturing them left and right, uh, without the RNC, without the National Republican Senatorial Committee, without McConnell and his surrogates and Cory Gardner and, and all the rest of them, John Cornyn, telling them what to do and think. They'll decide. I'll be right back. This is Mark Levin wishing you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. Now back to the best of me. There was an article written August 29, 2014 by Slate. Slate is a left-wing kook website, but nonetheless. And with Kirsten Gillibrand said that uh, she's been sexually harassed repeatedly with sexist comments about her body from her male colleagues, senators. 
and with, I'm quoting, a distressing inevitability, the discussion quickly became about how she individually should be doing more to stop this harassment. Gillibrand, they say, owes it to us to name names, the argument goes, lest she court accusations that she's lying. So Slate basically was arguing she doesn't have to name names. No, I'm arguing, and I have been arguing for days. No, we want names. Now, the only name that Kirsten Gillibrand could come up with was Donald Trump. It has nothing to do with any of this. So she's happy to name names, but she won't name the fellow senators, the male senators in the United States Senate as I speak, who she says, she alleges, repeatedly sexually harassed her. She won't name the names. And yet she mentions Donald Trump. Now what do you mean to make of this? You know what to make of this. She's not exactly the greatest spokesperson for this issue. I'm sorry, because she has revealed herself as a fraud. I'm not saying she hasn't been sexually harassed, but to drag in Donald Trump, that's the uh, talking point. To not call for Franken's expulsion. To not name names of United States senators, men, who are harassing her to the point where she talks about it in Slate and in other places, is really unacceptable. It's simply unacceptable because this is actually more than about the senators. It's about us. It's our government. These are senators. There's only a 100 of them. Out of 320 million of us, there's a 100 of them. They tell us they're going to pass laws to do this and pass laws to do that. Well, we want to know who they are. We barely know who they are. That's quite obvious. Wouldn't you want to know in your own private workplace, whether you're an employer or employee? Well, of course you'd want to know. It's incredible, isn't it? All right. I got to tell you, now that I've been sleeping on my Casper mattress for such a while, I would pick it over every mattress I've ever owned. It really does help me get the best night's sleep, period. Now, once you try Casper, you're going to love yours as much as I love mine. Switching to Casper is a no-brainer. It's a higher-quality mattress at a more affordable price. I'm sleeping cool and comfortably every night thanks to Casper's two high-tech foams, much better than on the old overpriced mattress I used to have, by the way. Casper ships right to your door for free in a small, how-did-they-do-that-size box. They'll even pick it up if you don't love it and refund you everything. From its breakthrough design and superior quality to its packaging to letting you try it for 100 nights. It's no wonder Casper was named one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative brands of 2017. Sleeping on a mattress, that's the best way to try it. Sleeping on it for over three months as opposed to a couple of minutes at a strip store retail? No, no, no. Put Casper to the test in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. Go to Casper.com, use code MARK. And get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. And it's already priced well. That's Casper.com, code MARK. Get 50 bucks towards the purchase of your mattress. Casper.com, code MARK, terms and conditions apply. As a matter of fact, I've got three different beds or so located throughout the house for Barney. And as you know, Barney has a bad back. My dog, Barney. One of them is a Casper. Yes, Casper. 
makes mattresses for dogs, too. He loves that mattress. That's the one he picks. He loves that mattress. And so do I. So Ms. Gillibrand, we know. We know who she is and what she is, given what she did with the Clintons, having embraced them year after year after year to advance her political career, campaigning with Hillary and Bill Clinton as recently as a year ago, now saying he should have resigned over the Lewinsky matter. Gee, that's nice. I thought I said that. And so many millions of us said that. Where was she? And then the only name she can bring up is Donald Trump. I'll be right back. From the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Happy Thanksgiving. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877 381 3811 877-381-3811. Time to move on to a less distasteful subject and that is freedom that is economics we like to introduce thoughtful things into the radio from time to time don't we I'm still hearing the Republicans on Capitol Hill sound like class warfare warriors at the rich the middle class these are these are labels. This is this is a nomenclature that is borrowed from or stolen from socialists, even worse, Marxists. Like I said the other day, the proletariat, the bourgeoisie, I've written about this in many of my books. The proletariat being the working people, the bourgeoisie being the management class, the property owner businessman, landlord, etc., as I pointed out in Rediscovering Americanism, are cast as the evil, cold-blooded, plundering taskmasters in Marx's writings and apparently in the Republican propaganda on the tax bills. Meanwhile, the employee and the laborer are portrayed as noble, compassionate, powerless, abused. But human beings are not so easily assigned to such ranks and classes by such preconceived and stereotypical characteristics. In fact, most proletariats, a.k.a. workers, do not feel terrorized by the bourgeoisie, that is, landlords and businessmen and so forth. Therefore, they do not spontaneously rise up to the revolutionary cause. Also, most bourgeoisie are not terrorizing their employees or tenants. The contrary. Industrial society is not inherently wicked. It has improved the standard of living for most of the population in a complex society. Bourgeoisie and proletariat alike. Where the comforts of a developed economy are available to virtually all who participate in it. I remember writing these words. I'll tell you what. This is why I love writing my books. I intellectually get lost in this stuff. 
I don't mean lost with it, lost in it. Just keep digging and digging and thinking. And In fact, ladies and gentlemen, the entire nomenclature and class identification that you're hearing from Republicans today, devised by Marx, among others, is terribly flawed. For example, is there a monolithic, alienated class of workers or proletariat? Even the so-called populists, whether of the Bernie Sanders sort or the other sort, they try to beat the drums to this notion of the proletariat versus the bourgeoisie. There was a great journalist and even more philosopher by the name of Raymond Aron, A-R-O-N. He lived from 1905 to 1983. I'm a huge fan of his. And I'm a fan of his book, The Opium of the Intellectuals, The Opium of the Intellectuals, which he wrote in 1955. He wrote of the myth of this proletariat. He said, why is it so often considered difficult to define the working class? No definition can trace precisely the limits of such a category. At what stage in the hierarchy does the skilled worker cease to belong to the proletariat and become a member of the bourgeoisie? Is the manual worker in the public services a proletarian, even though he receives his wages from the state and not from a private employer? Do the wage earners in commerce whose hands manipulate the objects manufactured by others, belong to the same groups as the wage earners in the industry? There can be no dogmatic answer to such queries. They have no common criterion. According to whether one considered the nature of the work, the method and the amount of the remuneration, the style of life, one will or will not include certain workers in the category of proletarians. The garage mechanic a wage-earning manual worker, is in a different position and has a different outlook on society from the worker employed on an assembly line in a motor car factory. Now, Raymond Aron illuminated this further. He wrote, The contempt with which the intellectuals are inclined to regard everything connected with commerce and industry has always seemed to me itself contemptible. And by the way, it's not just intellectuals, it's rabble-rousers that the same people who look down on engineers or industrialists profess to recognize universal man and the worker as his lathe or on the assembly line seems to me endearing but somewhat surprising. Neither the division of labor nor the raising of the standard of living contributes towards this universalism. Philosophers have the right to hope that the proletarian will not become integrated with the existing order, but that he will preserve himself for revolutionary action. But they cannot in modern times represent as fact the universality of the industrial worker. Not all proletarians have the feeling of being exploited or oppressed. In countries where the economy continues to expand, where the standard of living has risen, why should the real liberties of the proletariat, the worker, however partial, be sacrificed to a total liberation, which turns out to be indistinguishable from the omnipotence of the state. See, this is genius. This is genius. I've written similarly in Liberty and Tyranny about how you cannot really define a middle class. 
And as I wrote, and I paraphrased in there, as I will paraphrase, let's look at the farmer. The farmer who owns hundreds of acres. He's married and he has five children. He owns hundreds of, hundreds of acres, but he doesn't make a fortune. His family works very, very hard, 14, 16 hours a day. They squeeze out a living. Family of five, farmers. Let's say they make $120,000 net. Then let us take, shall we, a, a junior attorney in a major Manhattan law firm who works on securities issues, works with hedge funds and multinational, international corporations. She's not married. She's single. Maybe she's 27. She lives in a studio apartment in Manhattan, very expensive. Let's say she earns $120,000 a year. What exactly do these two families or these two examples have in common? Almost nothing. And yet they're both considered middle or upper middle class. Income does not define the person. Material does not define the person. There are all kinds of circumstances that define the person, the quality of their life, the standard of living, circumstances that you and I have nothing to do with. They choose to go into a particular profession or in a particular field. They choose to get married and have children or they don't. They choose to live in an expensive area or they don't. They choose to own land or they don't. And yet they earn the same amount of money doing completely different things with completely different socioeconomic conditions and completely different needs and expenses. And yet none of that, or almost none of it, is taken into consideration when you hear them talking about taxes right now. Because they are so consumed with the progressive ideology, the progressive mindset, the progressive model, that they have no idea what tax reform even means. It means slashing taxes across the board for everybody, every quote-unquote income group. These fake, mythical income groups they create in order to satisfy the needs, not of the individual, not of the family, not of the private sector, but of the government's demands on your income. And what's so nefarious about this is the Democrats do it, and obviously now the Republicans do it. They try and build an army of supporters for their for their aggressiveness in raising taxes. So what the Republicans have done here is it's not very clever, but people are not picking up on it. There's going to now be a larger percentage of people who pay not one penny in federal income taxes and in fact will be eligible for the earned in- income tax credit. That is a subsidy. It will now reach 50%, having already hit 47%. of our fellow citizens who work, quote-unquote, will either pay not a penny in federal income taxes or no more than 5%. 60%. And the Republicans are doing this right now. And the Republicans are doing this so they can build a... Well, populism has succeeded. 
a populist base to support their tax, quote-unquote, cutting, quote-unquote, reform agenda against all the rest of us who are carrying the load, who are paying the vast majority of the taxes in this country. And they go on and on, talking like Marxists about the proletariat. They don't call them the proletariat. They call them, quote-unquote, the workers. Now, how many truck drivers have called into this show in the last several days saying they're going to get whacked by this, these so-called uh, tax reform proposals and tax cut proposals? Because you see, ladies and gentlemen, in the end, they have to take it from you. There simply aren't enough billionaires to take enough money from. Because now we're talking about trillions and trillions and trillions of dollars. And what's so frustrating, so infuriating, is the deceit with which the Republicans, the leadership and the Republicans in the House and the Senate, and quite frankly, the President's uh, Gary Kahn and others like that, what's so frustrating about all this is that they know it. Just like Bernie Sanders throws around the word, the words middle class. Just like the leftists throw around the words middle class. Just like now the Republicans throw around the words middle class. I know it's hard. You have to reject this. When you pay your taxes, you're paying your taxes as an individual. When you sign your taxes, when you t your tax return, you're signing under the penalty of perjury, not for the middle class, but for yourself. When you buy a home and you have interest deductions from your mortgage or you have property tax deductions on your federal income tax or you're paying your state income tax and you can deduct that too, you're not doing that because you're part of the proletariat or the working class or the middle class. You're doing it as an individual with a family or a small businessman or woman as an entrepreneur trying to grow your business. There's a complete disconnect between what Washington is doing and between what you want Washington to do. And what they're trying to do is build a, a support base of millions and millions of people who will pay no federal income taxes, who will have no problem with what the Republicans want to do, and who seek to raise more and more money to fund more and more government. Why, you might ask. Why? Why would they do this? Because they do not want to cut government. The Republicans do not want to cut government, and they will embrace soon Ivanka Trump's uh, family leave. And by the way, I'm not doing this to take a shot at Ivanka Trump, who's a very lovely lady. I've met her once. Very, very lovely lady. But she's the one pressing for it, and of course many Republicans want it now, and many Democrats want it now. So the spending goes on and on. The yearly deficits get bigger and bigger. The overall debt gets bigger and bigger. And the Republicans talk like Marxists. I know, this is what I'm saying is, is, is considered truly outright. What are you calling them communists? I didn't call them communists. I said they are talk. They're using the nomenclature. I'll put it this way that people will be, uh, will be able to tolerate it more. They're using the nomenclature of the progressives. Of the progressives. Now, I just talked about the so-called middle class, the proletariat. Let's talk about the bourgeoisie when I come back. Who are the bourgeoisie? Who are these, these tenants, these managers, these landowners, these business owners who we're supposed to hate? I'll be right back. Mark in.
you the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Thanksgiving. Now, who are the rich? They're just as different as the non-rich. What does this word rich mean? Who falls into that category? Let's say you're an entrepreneur. You just started a business. And you had a successful year. And let's say you grossed $3.5 million, but when it's all said and done, you netted, let's just say, million dollars. You would net a lot less, but let's play along. Under the Republican tax bill, you're rich. But let's say you want to use that money to reinvest in your business to expand it and hire more people. It wouldn't matter. You're going to pay more taxes. Let's say you're Bill Gates and you're worth $60, $70 billion. Well, you're rich too. You're part of the proletariat. Bill Gates and that entrepreneur have absolutely nothing in common. Bill Gates, one of the founders of Microsoft, and this entrepreneur just getting started trying to expand his business, trying to hire a few more people, trying to put a few bucks in his pocket or her pocket as they expand the business. They have nothing in common. Zero. Let's go back to the farmer. Let's say you've been farming for some time and you're actually very successful. You make a decent amount of money. Let's say you you gross in terms of wheat and corn sales or what have you. Eight, nine million dollars. But you net, maybe, just again, play along, three million dollars. That's a good sum. You're part of the bourgeoisie. Really? You're part of the bourgeoisie? Are you George Soros? Who's worth some twenty billion dollars? No, you still have to be careful with your money because you still have a business to run. And the next year you might earn nothing. Or very little. There's no guarantee, is there? So the bourgeoisie, for the most part, that is, the rich, have very little in common with each other. Just as the proletariat, the workers, have very little in common with each other. Some do, some don't. And yet, The government, for its own efficiencies, and the government, for its own desire to dehumanize us, to attack the nature of individualism and individual freedom, in essence to attack the right to property and capitalism, uses the nomenclature of the Marxists, of the progressive, sticks us in categories which are absolutely nonsensical. And here's a final point. The categories change. Today, a millionaire is a person who nets a million dollars. Tomorrow, a millionaire is somebody who nets $500,000. And in the end, everybody gets stuck. I'll be right back. This is Mark Levin wishing you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. Now back to the best of me. America's most powerful conservative voice, The Mark Levin Show. Dial in now, 877-381-3811. Captera. It's that time of year again when the days are shorter. Don't waste your precious daylight sifting through a sea of search results when looking for the right business software. 
Get home on time tonight with Capterra.com. Capterra.com. C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A.com. Whether you're a startup looking to keep better track of customers, a nonprofit hoping to have a record fundraising year, or a business that simply needs better payroll software, you need software and Capterra got, has you covered. Search Capterra's 400 categories of software. Discover the right tool for your business, anything from email marketing to scheduling to accounting and beyond. Capterra makes it easy to find what you're looking for. Capterra has thousands of ratings and reviews from actual software users just like you, so you know what's the best. Best of all, listen to this. Using Capterra is absolutely free. Free. Now, 2018 will be here before you know it. So make sure you've got the software your business needs today to help you do what you do better. Join the millions who use Capterra. That's Capterra, C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A, Capterra.com slash Levin. That's Capterra.com slash L-E-V-I-N. What a great service. It's free, too. Get the right software. Business efficiencies, and not just businesses, associations, nonprofits, churches, as an example. That's capterra.com slash Levin, L-E-V-I-N. Absolutely free for you to use. That's always good, right? Now, let's keep digging as they talk about their so-called tax cuts and tax reform. Let's keep digging. Have you ever heard of a professor, a philosopher, Irish philosopher actually, by the name of Philip Pettit? Well, I hadn't either until I wrote Rediscovering Americanism, and I dug deeply into some of his writings, and they're brilliant. Particularly his book, Republicanism, A Theory of Freedom and Government, 1997. He's updated it since. And I want to point this out to you, because the Propaganda about proletariat and bourgeoisie, the working class versus the management class. It's not only the Saul Linskyites, the progressives in this country that use it, but unfortunately it's some of the populists in this country who also use it. Which is why I say we need to have a really good debate on this subject, a really good understanding of what all this means. And I'm certainly engaged and ready to go at it. Now, he explains that some of the founding-era writers supported a populist approach to the government, favoring majoritarianism, meaning a democratic form of government, favoring that over republicanism, and that such a governing construct actually threatens the safeguards against arbitrary interference with individual liberty. It's a point I make all the time. He wrote, while it is true that the Republican thinkers, meaning those who believe in a Republican form of government, in general regarded democratic participation or representation as a safeguard of liberty, not as its defining core. Representation, not as, okay, not as its defining core. Representation as a safeguard of liberty, not as its defining core. The growing emphasis on democracy did leave some individuals away from traditional alignments and towards the full populist position of holding that liberty consists in nothing more than democratic self-rule. Do you believe that? If you believe that, then you reject the, the philosophers who the framers and the founders embraced. 
then you reject republicanism and constitutionalism. We've talked about Rousseau here. I write about him extensively in Rediscovering Americanism. And Pettit points out, Rousseau is probably responsible for having given currency to such a populist view. The populist twist was a new development and attained its full form only when the ideal of democratic self-rule came to be held up as the main alternative, or at least the main alternative among notions of liberty, to the negative ideal of non-interference. That is, to the ideal of republicanism, where there are absolute limits on government in order to protect the individual. To think of the republican tradition as populist, as of course many have done, he writes, would be to sustain the very dichotomy that has rendered the Republican ideal invisible. In other words, he's saying it's an impossibility. The tradition of populism, which is a limited tradition, in the tradition of republicanism, in the end, in the end, they cannot coexist. I point out the new populism certainly was not the dominant view during the American founding. The entire debate surrounding the drafting, adoption, and ratification of the Constitution, and the debates between the Federalists and Anti-Federalists make this abundantly clear. The progressives did and do use populist language in appeals to nationalism. Theodore Roosevelt, Woodrow Wilson, Crowley, Weill, Dewey, and on and on and on. Appeals to nationalism. To make alluring the promotion of an ever larger and more centralized governmental presence and administrative structure. Their approach could be characterized as democratizing tyranny. Progressives condemn America's founding principles, including the Declaration of Independence and its emphasis on individual unalienable rights, as well as the Constitution, especially the separation of powers doctrine and federalism, precisely because of their Republican features and obstacles to concentrated governmental power. Now, why am I talking about this now? It's in the context of the tax debate. When you have Republicans who pose as constitutionalists, who pose as conservatives, who pose as believers in property rights and individual liberty and all the rest, when you have them trying to create a quote-unquote class of citizens who will not pay a penny in federal income taxes, when you have Republicans who try to expand their numbers into an army of individuals, citizens who will not pay a penny in federal income taxes, while at the same time, massively increasing the burden on other citizens, whether they pretend not to be or not is of no consequence. They are. Somebody has to pay at least part of the bill. Well, then you have the embrace of populism. And I think the populists out there should be celebrating, celebrating this tax bill. They should be celebrating it. Where constitutional conservatives who believe in republicanism should be opposing it. Should be opposing it. Yet, things don't necessarily work out that way, do they? And there's a lot more to this. When we talk about, and when they talk about on TV, these Republicans showing up one after another, Paul Ryan held a town hall meeting or with Fox. It was actually very interesting. 
There are many other layers to this. I can't cover them all, even in a three-hour broadcast. I can't cover them all, even in a week's worth of broadcasting. I cover them in the book, but I cover them elsewhere, too. And that is the immorality of this model. It is an attack on the individual, and it is an attack on private property rights. When you have people who work very, very, very hard, or very, very, very smart, or whatever they're doing, many of you, who provide a service, or a product, or support a service, or a product, that is valuable, that is worthy of somebody exchanging currency for it, somebody giving up some of their material wealth, Enriching you, I didn't say making you rich, enriching you because they want your service or product. And you get up in the morning, those of you who work, you know, day shift or day hours, you get up early in the morning, many of you, you leave your family, many of you, you get stuck in traffic. You go to the office, you go to the assembly line, you drive a truck, whatever you do. You work. Now let me ask you a question. Why do you work? Well, many of us enjoy it. Okay. But there's a lot of things we enjoy that doesn't involve work. So why do you work besides enjoyment? Many of you hate your jobs, and yet you still work. You work because you want to provide yourself and your family, if you have a family, with wealth. Again, not that you're wealthy, but with wealth. With an income. So you can eat. So you have a roof over your head. So you can clothe yourself and your family. But even more than that. So you're free. You work to be free. You work to be mobile. You work so you can make individual decisions as an individual American citizen. You use your labor, your intellectual labor and your physical labor. Your life on earth is finite. Your ability to work, your career, whatever it is, is limited. So you use your precious life on earth, a significant amount of it, to work in order to create a benefit for yourself and your family. So when the government steps in and the government says, you know what? You earned that much money. We're going to take this percentage of it. The government doesn't know you. The government doesn't know your family. The government doesn't know how hard you work. The government doesn't know your circumstances. The government doesn't know anything about you or your family. It is immoral, listen, apart from all the rest, it is immoral for politicians to tell you whether you have enough money. It is immoral for politicians to tell you whether your work, your labor, intellectual and physical, that you apply each and every day, is only allowed to be so much in terms of the value that you've created. Because the government's going to take it and give it to somebody else. And give it to somebody else. If you start from that premise, 
then you realize that all this talk about redistributing wealth, all this talk about, well, we're going to have a new category, 45.6% on dollars over a million dollars. Or, you know, you have a deduction for your property. You have a deduction for your, your state income taxes, and we're subsidizing states. You're not subsidizing states. That money belongs to the individual who purchased the home. That income belongs to the individual who happens to live in that state. It's not about blue states, red states. Those of you who live in red states, you have property taxes too. Most of you have state income taxes too. It's not about states. It's about individual worth, individual rights. It's about your labor, physical and other labor, intellectual. That's what it's about. It is immoral. I believe the progressive income tax is immoral. But it's especially immoral when a continuing, reducing, reduced number of American citizens are carrying the weight because it is said that they've earned too much or they earn enough or they can afford it and so forth and so on. It's immoral. No, I'm not saying there shouldn't be a basic level of protection for people to the extent that that can be afforded. But when the central business of government is to redistribute wealth, when the central business of government is to create a nomenclature, economic classes, and telling us who deserves what, who can keep what, when the central business of government is to fund those government activities that are not even constitutionally authorized. It is immoral. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Happy Thanksgiving. Why don't I spend time doing most shows... Probably not enough time. Why do I write these books? Getting into this stuff. All kinds of stuff like this. Because there's another philosopher who's since passed. His name is Berlin. And another brilliant man. And I've talked about him in the past, as I have many of these philosophers. And he talked about uh, positive liberty and negative liberty, which is wholly misunderstood by too many. But... He said, and I paraphrase, and I've talked about this many times, ideas determine our fate. And if ideas are left to the intellectuals and the academics, they will determine our fate. When you hear somebody say, you know, these discussions about free markets and property rights and the Constitution and individual liberty are boring, or when you hear somebody say they're theories, they're abstractions, these are people who are posers, who pretend to understand things but don't. If we don't understand these ideas, we don't express them, we don't promote them, we will lose. We will lose our liberty, we will lose our constitution, and we will lose our country. The American Revolution was about ideas. Ideas that have been written about, talked about through the ages, but never actually 
established in a country. We're the first. That's why America is different. That's why America is great. That's why when politicians say they don't do this in Europe or we ought to do this in Europe, they do not comprehend the greatness of this country. You know, i got to tell you now, I've been sleeping on my Casper mattress for a good while. I'd pick it over every mattress I ever had. God's honest truth. It really does help me get the best night's sleep, period. Once you try Casper, you're going to love yours as much as I love mine. Switching to Casper is a no-brainer. It's higher quality mattress at a more affordable price. Now, I'm sleeping cool and comfortably every night thanks to Casper's two high-tech foams, much better than on the old overpriced mattress I used to have. Casper ships right to your door for free in a small, how-did-they-do-that size box. They'll even pick it up if you don't love it and refund you everything. Now, from its breakthrough design and superior quality to its packaging to letting you try it for 100 nights, it's no wonder Casper was named one of Fast Company's 50 most innovative brands of 2017. Sleeping on a mattress is the best way to try it. Put Casper to the test in your own home for 100 nights risk-free. You might say, look, I already have a mattress. I'm going to keep it. Great. You can still try the Casper. Take your mattress, lean it up against the wall, try the Casper. You can try it for over three months. I'm betting it won't take you but a few nights to say, this is my mattress, the Casper. So you can try it risk-free. Go to Casper.com, use code MARK for $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. And now's the perfect time with the holidays coming. Get your new mattress or new mattresses now. That's Casper.com, code MARK, so you get $50 towards the purchase of your mattress. That's Casper.com, code MARK. Terms and conditions apply. I know you're going to love this mattress. If you have a guest room and you're looking for a mattress, people coming for Thanksgiving or the other holidays and so forth, perfect time to get it. Get it before the rush is on. Casper.com, code MARK. Got a powerful third hour left, ladies and gentlemen. I hope you'll stay with me. I'll be right back. He's here. He's here. Now broadcasting from the underground command post, deep in the bowels of a hidden bunker, somewhere under the brick and steel of a nondescript building, we've once again made contact with our leader, Mark Levin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Happy Thanksgiving. Hello, everybody. Mark Levin here. Our number, 877-381-3811, 877-381-3811. I want to get to the the questions that I posed to you this hour, but before I do, there was a, a fascinating interview uh, of Gloria Allred by Katie Turr, another one at MSNBC who might be a little nervous because she actually did a pretty good job, so she'll want to watch her back. Uh, she's no Mika Brzezinski. She's a real journalist, apparently. And I won't even play the whole thing. I'll just play a part of it. And she's pressing her about the signature on that annual, in the case of uh, Roy Moore. Cut 10, go. But did she see him sign it? Uh, you know, I don't, I, I, I haven't asked her if she saw him, but we did describe what happened that evening in question, uh, that what she alleges was that she put it on the counter 
that I think that he asked to sign or that he did sign it. That's all. Um, I ask this because it seems like you're not 100 percent sure that it is his signature. And if you're not 100 percent sure that it is his signature, why would you show it at a press conference? Well, why would, you know, why does anybody doubt that it is his signature? Well, Roy Moore's campaign is saying, and Roy Moore himself is saying it's not his signature. Well, he has a motive to say that uh, and, uh, and, and let him prove that it's not. Well, it's hard to prove a negative. Everybody knows that. Now, that said, uh, this isn't the first interview like this, or the first, well, the equivocation is what's troubling to me. We talked about that. Just give it to, to uh, signature experts. Find one who is renowned and ask them. you got the Roy Moore folks who are saying it's not. You've got the Gloria Allred's client who, and Gloria Allred who used the yearbook, the annual, as evidence of some sort. So, okay, fine. Now there's some question being raised about the authenticity of the writing of the signature and um, she doesn't seem to be 100% sure. This Katie Turr of MSNBC, I know it's amazing. She happens to be right about that. Maybe it is his signature. Maybe it is. But why not put it through the process? Well, you know, I don't need any process here. We, we don't, you know, when it comes to Frank and we don't want to prejudice, we have an ethics committee, you got to... You want to check out, you want to talk to the woman, you got to, you know, we got a whole thing going on over here. But when it comes to Roy McDam, I can't go through all that. Do I have enough time for that? How do you know? Well, Mitch McConnell said, that's how I know. All right, I want to get off this stuff. I started the show reading you something. I'm going to read it again, and I'm very, very curious to know what you think. So, Mr. Call Screener, go through the calls, the board's full, and just see if people are are interested in discussing this. If not, we're going to have to ask them to call us next week. Okay? Here's what I wrote in the epilogue, obviously just a couple paragraphs of it, in the epilogue of my book, Rediscovering Americanism and the Tyranny of Progressivism. And it's on the uh, back of the book, the cover of the book. I want to read it one more time, and I'm, I'm very curious to have your input. I confess that I often wonder what America will become in 50 or 100 years. What will the future hold for our children and grandchildren? I bet you have these thoughts too. Will they be free, happy, prosperous, independent, and secure? What will be left of our constitutional system? Will the Bill of Rights have the force of law? What about property rights? Will they matter? How many will remember or care to learn about our founding principles? That's concisely and brilliantly set forth in the Declaration of Independence. How many remember or care today? What of the civil society or the social compact? Will it afraid beyond repair? Will we have been conquered from within as Thomas Jefferson, Joseph Story, and Abraham Lincoln feared might be our fate? Will we have avoided the doom of Athens and Rome? If we're honest with ourselves, we must agree that the outcome is unclear. The reason a century or so of progressive governance and schemes targeting the uniqueness of America, including its founding principles and Republican system. Now, in this context, I want to play you an audio of uh, Steve Mnuchin. 
who serves as our Treasury Secretary. He's on Fox News today talking about the, the tax cuts. Cut one, Mr. Producer, go. Well, I'm sympathetic to the issue in high-tax states. As I've said before, I've lived in New York and California. Uh, you know, for rich people in those states, their taxes are going to go up. Uh, having said that, they're going to get the benefit of the business tax reduction. They're going to get the benefit of pass-throughs, which for small and medium-sized businesses, you'll have the lowest rates since we've had the 1930s. Well, well, I thought it was the 1920s. I could have sworn somebody said that. Go ahead. Run lots of numbers for people who make 100, 200, 300,000 in New York, and the vast majority of those people all get tax cuts. So, if you're a rich person living in New York and California, well, too bad your taxes are going up. If you're a rich person living in a blue state, your taxes are going to go up. Now, you know damn well if Barack Obama had been doing this, you'd be jumping up and down. You'd be jumping up and down. Having a higher rate, in a higher effective rate. So they're going to slash federal corporate income taxes, like they should. But, if you're rich, and you live in New York or California or a blue state or a high tax state, you're paying more taxes. Now, ladies and gentlemen, a couple things about this. We talked about this. What does it mean to be rich? Now, Mr. Mnuchin worked at Goldman Sachs. He's worth 50 to $100 million. That's rich. Fine. He wants his taxes to go up. That's his problem. It's like this Buffett running around all the time saying, I pay too little in taxes. And my answer is, well, then pay more. What's your problem? The problem is, folks, they're really, truly rich. They can't tax them enough to pay anything. So they change this definition of rich or wealthy. And so if you net a million dollars one year, they're going to hammer you. They're going to hammer you. But here's the other point you need to understand. It's not just the rich. Remember Obamacare? They used this class warfare crap too. Well, Obamacare has harmed all of you doesn't even matter what your income level is unless you're getting freebies. This will do exactly the same thing. I was at a Bob Big Boys this morning. And I often go to a Bob Big Boys for breakfast. And I was there. I was talking to the waitress. Can I call people waitresses now? I don't know. I have to ask uh, Kirsten uh, Gillibrand. Very, very nicely. I know these people. We're all very friendly. And we're talking about the taxes that are being proposed in the House and the Senate. And she said to me, what is with this taxing rich people? I want to have a job. An awful lot of Americans understand this. So this class warfare, the lowest common denominator, using the propaganda of the left, really is very frustrating to me. Very, very frustrating to me. And even the supply-siders on TV and radio, they really sound stupid. You know, I like the cuts for the corporation. The individuals, you know, but the corporate cuts will have all kinds of job growth and everything. While you're whacking on the individual income side. And let me tell you something, folks. It's not just rich people. 
It's many of you. We've had callers call this program. One lady called and said, my husband was in the military several decades. He retired. He has two other jobs. I have a full-time job. We make over a quarter of a million dollars a year. We're in a high-tax state. Remember that caller, Mr. Producer? I forget which state. Was it Illinois? Something like that. And she was pointing out that the cap on her taxes, you know, property taxes and so forth, well, she's going to go above that. And they worked out the numbers, and she's going to be paying more in taxes. I don't get this blue state, red state stuff when it comes to filing your individual income taxes. Do you put on your individual income tax form for the IRS, I live in a blue state, so screw me? No. Do you put on your form, I live in a red state, so I don't pay property taxes? I know people who live in red states, and they pay a hell of a lot in property taxes. They also pay a hell of a lot in state income taxes. Maybe not as much as New York or California. That's not the standard. That's not the measure. And do we want another whack at the housing market? I've talked about this before. Okay, let's say a zillionaire builds a 400,000 square foot home. You know, I'm doing it for exaggeration purposes to make an example. Just think of all the painters and plumbers and electricians and roofers and carpenters and on and on and on that are hired. It's enormous. What do I care what the guy lives in? It means nothing to me. The real choice is, does the money stay in the private sector? Does it stay in your hands, the people who earned it, your labor, intellectual and physical? Or does Mr. Mnuchin decide where it goes? Or do these apparently sexual perverts in Congress decide where it goes? This is your money. To have a Secretary of the Treasury, rich people in high-tax states are going to pay more. To talk like that. You would expect that from the Secretary of the Treasury in a an Elizabeth Warren administration or a Bernie Sanders administration or a Barack Obama administration, not in a Donald Trump administration, not when we control all the elected branches of government. Here he goes again. Cut two. Go. But you, you, you will admit now, for the sake of this discussion, that some Americans under this Republican plan will be paying more in taxes. Correct. There, there will be people who make more than a million dollars in high-tax states. Yay! Get him! Get him! Get him! And by the way, it's more than that. There's a lot of you who don't make a million dollars. You're going to get whacked, too. And you're going to find out if they pass this. You're going to find out, and you're going to be very, very upset and disappointed. But don't worry, ladies and gentlemen. There's going to be more and more freeloaders who don't pay one penny in federal income taxes. Yay! Yay! And do they live in blue states or red states? Most of them live in blue states. Oh, wait a minute. Boo! Boo! They're in blue states? Oh! No, no, they need to be in red states. And there's many people in the so-called middle class that we can't even define. We don't even know what that means. We don't even know who that is, but everybody identifies. Oh, I'm in the middle class. I'm in the middle class. Well, there's many of you. You're going to get whacked, too. Like Obamacare. No, you know, uh, millionaires, uh, millionaires, we're, we're going to get the millionaires. Yay! In the blue states, yes, get them, get them, get them, get them. Really? Go ahead. 
will be paying more. And as the president has said, this is not a tax plan to cut taxes for rich people. This is a tax plan to make businesses My competitive. God, what am I? What am I not? Is it not a tax plan to rich people? Is not a tax plan to make businesses? Go ahead. Give middle-income taxpayers. When I hear that M word, I think it's code, you know, and I, I, I'm used to hearing it from the left for many years. I think Good you for are, you, Hammer. Go ahead. I think you would admit that. But this is a Republican majority in the House and in the Senate and the White House, and you're admitting that for some Americans, they will pay more in taxes. Well, but again, is, what, this, what is this what the American people have waited a generation for? Now stop right there. Hemmer should be the Secretary of Treasury. Absolutely brilliant. Brilliant. In what he just did there and said there. It's as if he's talking to Bernie Sanders. Listen to this. Go ahead. Again, just to be just to be clear, what we're doing is getting rid of the state and local tax deduction, which is a loophole for high tax states. That's Stop. Let me ask you folks who have mortgages. Well, many of you who don't have mortgages, you pay property tax. Many of you don't have kids in school, but you pay an enormously high property tax. Those of you who do have kids in school, you pay an enormously high property tax. Some of you pay a high state income tax. It's not because you want to. It's because you have a home. You've lived there. Maybe uh, you've lived there for several generations in your family. Maybe not. Maybe that's where your job is, so you have to move. Oh, I'm in a blue state. Oh, punish me. Punish me. Punish me. But listen to this guy. Listen to this guy. Your deductions now on your property taxes or state income taxes, that's a loophole. I told you this is where we would head. That's a loophole. That's not a loophole. Is this a joke? If you're banking your money overseas and you're trying to avoid this, that's a loophole. If you're deducting the the taxes that you're paying to the state on your federal income tax form, that's not a loophole. When millions and millions of people are benefiting from that, we should be celebrating it. It's a subsidy. It's not a subsidy. It's your money to begin with. This is what I mean. They sound like Marx. They sound like Sanders. They sound like Alinsky. Go ahead. Why New York, California, and others have taxes as high as they are. Because- I look, you jerk. I live in Virginia. That's right, I said it. I live in Virginia. Oh, that's not a hard tax state. They tax the crap out of us. Income taxes, car taxes, real estate taxes, business license taxes, this tax, that tax. Oh, that's a blue state, so screw you. I'll be right back. Mark Lovin. You're listening to the best of the Mark Levin Show. Happy Thanksgiving. Yesterday I spent uh, part of the time talking about the president lifting this ban on elephant trophies in this country, and I thought it was a huge mistake. And we spent some time talking about it. We had a number of hunters calling. I think every one, or at least most of them, agreed with me. And I want to update you on this and tell you why... Your input, this program, is very important, as it's it's heard in Washington and other places. It's from Fox News. President Trump places elephant trophy ban reversal 
on hold. It looks like President Trump is having a change of heart when it comes to his recent decision to lift the ban on importing elephant trophies from Africa. In a tweet tonight, Trump said he decided to put the big game trophy decision on hold. The comment comes less than 48 hours after it was first announced that the Trump administration would reverse a 2014 ban made under President Obama on permits for elephant trophies from Zambia and Zimbabwe. Here's what the president tweeted. Put big game trophy decision on hold until such time as I review all conservation facts under study for years. We'll update soon with Secretary Zinke. Thank you. Okay. He's putting it on hold, and that's a good thing. And I personally want to thank him. Because, you know, these things bubble up in these administrations. It clearly bubbled up in the Interior Department, and somebody pushed it, and the president said, not so fast. That's good news, right? I think it's great news. But we appreciate it, Mr. President. I'll be right back. This is Mark Levin wishing you and your family a happy Thanksgiving. Now back to the best of me. You're listening to Denali, the great one. The great one. And you can call in now, 877-381-3811. I want to tell you about Captera. Stick with me on this. It's very cool, very important. It's that time of year again when the days are shorter. Don't waste your precious daylight sifting through a sea of search results when looking for the right business software. Get home on time tonight with Captera.com. By the way, that's C-A-P-T-E-R-R-A dot com, Captera. Now, whether you're a startup looking to keep better track of customers, a nonprofit hoping to have a record fundraising year, or business that simply needs better payroll software, you need software, and Captera's got you covered. Search Captera's 400 categories of software. Discover the right tool for your business, anything from email marketing to scheduling to accounting and beyond. Captera makes it easy to find what you're looking for. Captera has thousands of ratings and reviews from actual software users just like you. Best of all, you ready for this? Using Captera is absolutely free. Hello, absolutely free. 2018 will be here before you know it, so make sure you've got the software your business needs today to help you do what you do best. Join the millions who use Captera. That's Captera, C-A-P. T-E-R-R-A dot com slash Levin. Captera dot com slash L-E-V-I-N. Really, you ought to check that out. It's got all these software options for you to possibly use. It's got ratings on them, so you'll know what the best are. What the hell happened to my computer? Why does it do this all the time, Mr. Mister Producer? <coughs> Excuse me, I have cholera. All right, give me a caller, please. Steve in Texas, the great WBAP. Go. Hey, Mark. How you doing? Uh, I would like to, you know, you were asking about uh, what we thought about our future, you know, as far as where this country's going. And uh, with the way they're changing stuff, I'm afraid that, you know, my, my nephews and nieces, they're not going to live in the same country that I've lived in. And I would like to follow up or make a prediction about the uh, sexual harassment training that our... Well, let me, let me, let's focus on one thing right now, and that is this. I don't necessarily disagree with you. I don't think we have a lot of time left to turn this thing around. 
And I know, oh, a doomsayer. No, that's not a matter of being a doomsayer. The country is is evolving into, and I talk about a post-constitutional society. And I really do think that there, even when you listen to the Republicans, you heard Mnuchin, right? You heard me play what I said, or what he said, rather. He has no respect for private property rights, except his own. None. Well, you know, I got a millionaire. Well, they obviously produced something that people wanted. So you're going to zap them? You're going to hit them at a higher rate? Take the money and give it to the government? What's the government going to do with that money? It's going to crap it away, isn't it? That's exactly what they're going to do. And more and more money drained out of the private sector, and yet we have people cheering for this. We have Republicans voting for this. We have the head of the Treasury Department under a Republican talking like he's the head of the Treasury Department under Bernie Sanders. Literally, repeatedly, explicitly using class warfare. Yeah, and I know we we moved from Virginia. I retired. We moved from Virginia to Texas. We don't have the state tax, but our property taxes here are higher than they were in Virginia. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, I mean, that's just the way it is. I knew that before I came here. And, uh, but I love the way they talk about, so, so all you people who live in red states, don't worry. Even though you can't deduct your property taxes, even though you can't deduct your state income taxes, and some of them have on there your interest on your mortgage, depending on the value of your house, don't worry about it because we're really sticking it to the blue states. What in the hell does that have to do with anything? Really? All right, my friend, I appreciate your call. Just want to get in as many here as we can. Go ahead, Mr. Bedu- oh, Mr. Produce is very clever here. Let us go to Russell in Allen, Texas, the great WBAP. Go. Hey, Mark, how are you doing? It's a great uh, great honor to talk to you. I haven't talked to you in a long time. And uh, I just want to press it by saying I... Uh, I was in the military. My older brother was in the military. My father was in the military. My grandfather fought in World War II in the Pacific. And I just wanted to read you something. Hold on now. Hold on now. Hold on now. You deserve a proper salute there, sir. That's absolutely wonderful. Thank you very much. And to your family. Yes. And thank you very much. I appreciate that. And I wanted to read you something. I read your book, Liberty and Tyranny, when it came out. I bought the hardcover. And I went through the whole book. And it was a wonderful book. And Mark, I want to tell you, I cried in the last, the last page in 205. Mm-hmm. And all this tax stuff, all the sexual harassment stuff, all this stuff that's going on in this country right now. I want to read you something for all the readers that haven't read this book and maybe not read this book. President Reagan said, freedom is never more than talk, what you're talk, talk into the mouthpiece, because you're quoting a very important part of what Reagan said. I'm sorry. Yeah. Freedom is never more that generation away from extinction. We did not pass it to our children in the bloodstream. It must be fought for, protected, and handed on to the same to them. Or one day we'll spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it was like in the United States when men went free. Mm-hmm. And Mark, mm-hmm. yeah, that's amazing. That man was a great man, and that you knew that man, that's fantastic. And that says all the American people out there, that all this stuff that goes on, that's what we fight for, and we should fight for. Beautifully said. Beautifully said. I really appreciate your call. Thank you. Thank you. That's Russell from uh, Allen, Texas. Andy 
Sydney, Nebraska, Sirius Satellite. How are you? I'm well. Thanks for taking my call, Mark. And i got to say, that last caller is kind of hard to follow. Yeah, he's um, a good man. My uh, my comment is in relation to your, in, uh, your question about where we're going to be in 50 or 100 years. You know, I've heard you talk about the Convention of States before, and that's the only thing I can see that offers any kind of hope. I mean, ultimate power corrupts ultimately. And when you have people in the same job making all the decisions for 30 and 40 years, you know, and they've lost the ear of the people. And, and you know, I, I just I despair. I, I don't know. The only thing I can see is to get them out and get somebody else in that's going to pay attention. And I would have thought the midterm elections for both of uh, President Obama's terms would have said something. You know, we weren't happy with I'll, what he I'll, was t- I'll tell you, since you brought it up, I'll tell you what motivated me to write the Liberty Amendments, the book on Convention of States and Article 5 and my 11 Reform Amendment ideas for restoring our republic. When I originally researched this topic of Convention of States, Article 5, I was vehemently against it for all the reasons you hear all the time. A runaway convention, uh, you know, Madison... The father of the Constitution, they couldn't do any better than he did, and so forth and so on. And as I studied it, I realized how phony all these arguments are. I mean, it was Madison, among others, and George Mason, who supported and voted on the Article 5, the two ways of amending a Constitution, two days before the end of the Constitutional Convention. It was the states that ratified the adopted convention in Philadelphia that included the language in Article 5. Uh, it is Article 5 that is married with the Tenth Amendment, which came later, which is federalism. It is quintessential federalism for the states to meet, to have individuals sent, to have a meeting to decide what they need to do in order to defend themselves and defend the citizens of their states, that is, the citizens of the United States. And this is a, a brilliant constitutional, legitimate, nonviolent way to accomplish that, and that's exactly what they expected. And so when people get enormously frustrated like we are, there is a, uh, there's, a, there, there's a valve you can turn <clears throat> to let the steam off in a way that the body politic can participate. It's impossible to have a runaway convention. First of all, it's not a convention, not a constitutional convention. It's a meeting. Secondly, you need 38 states, either through conventions of their own or through their legislatures, to adopt the changes, just as you need them now. That's a lot of states, 38 out of 50. So 13 states can block anything. It is a process that requires the, the full attention and support of the body politic. And there's no alternative to it, none. And you and I know this because we don't need to even look back in history. The Tea Party rose up in 2010 as a result of the, the profligate spending and activities of the George W. Bush administration and the, uh, and the Obama administration. And um, they rose up. They threw out Pelosi and the Democrats out of the House. They threw out uh, Harry Reid and the Democrats uh, leading the Senate in 2014. Uh, the, the Tea Party movement, they can call it something else at these other places, but that's what it is. Conservatives, citizens, constitutionalists rising up uh, and spontaneously <clears throat> trying to save the republic, trying to reverse course. Also elected Donald Trump. Remember who came in second? Ted Cruz. There was no liberal, there was no rhino, there was no establishment type who was even close to getting the nomination. And so we have a president of the United States who does not come out of that milieu. 
And if we can't get things accomplished, given the the the, the movement, the elections, the uh, the that all this that's taken place at the federal level, things accomplished like this, where they this phony this phony tax cut idea. If you're a corporation, you're set. If you're an individual, you better get an accountant and figure this stuff out. So much for the uh, for the flat tax or the fair tax or anything of the kind. Um, I happen to agree with you that in the end. Before there's an end, we need a convention of states under Article 5. But here's the problem. Here's the problem, Andy. If we have a blowout election in the next cycle, we're going to have a hell of a problem getting more states on board. Do you see what I mean? We're going to have a hell of a big problem getting more states on board. Andy, are you still there, sir? I am, sir. I am. Do you have a copy of the Liberty Amendments? Um, no, I don't, actually. Well, let me send you a signed copy of the Liberty Amendments, and uh, which helped, you know, start this entire movement. Not not solely or exclusively, but in a significant part. All right, don't hang up so we can send that to you. You know, Thanksgiving is less than one week away. Are you worried everyone will notice your under-eye bags and droopy eyelids that just keep getting worse? Introducing the brand new Genesel Eye Lift for tighter, brighter, younger looking eyes. Here's Mary from Fort Collins, Colorado. I don't believe everything I hear, she wrote. So I tried this eye lift on my right eye. The next day at work, the next day, everybody said my right eye looked better. I couldn't believe it. So ladies and gentlemen, Chaminade's best sale of the year just got better. Until Thanksgiving, order Genesel treatment for bags and puffiness and get the brand new Genesel eyelid lift absolutely free. And for results in 12 hours, the Genesel immediate effects is also free. But you need to act before Thanksgiving. So I would do it now while it's fresh in mind. 800-SKIN-604, 800-SKIN-604, or go to Genesel.com. Plus, call in the next 20 minutes. You'll also get the Esotique RF Collagen Builder and the Deep Firming Serum absolutely free with your order. I wouldn't wait. 800 skin 604. I can tell you now, my buddy Teddy, and he does exist. He's a good guy. He's on the phone right this second. That's four bestsellers free with your order while supplies last, so you need to hurry. 800 skin 604. 800 skin 604. 800 skin 604. Mark Lovin. This is the best of Mark Levin. Happy Thanksgiving. Clayton, Atlanta, Georgia, the great WYAY. Go. Good evening, Mark. It's fabulous to talk with you. Long-time listener, first-time caller. And I, I love your logic. I love your analysis and perspective. I respectfully have to disagree on the tax bill. I, I, I'm Given the number of Rhino Republicans, I, I really feel like it's the best thing we're going to be able to get, and hopefully we can pass something and then improve it. In then the don't do anything. Well, I, and I, slash I, the corporate income taxes and leave the rates alone. Did you say slash the corporate income taxes? And then leave the other rates alone. Well, I mean, I, I would go with that, but I, I'm a manufacturer. And so would they. Well, would they? I, and that's yes, my question. yes, they would. would. Do that. So. Yeah, because the hang-up here is they're hearing from. Uh, you know, people talking about, uh, well, what, I can't deduct my property taxes and so forth, because they've created a question about that. They haven't, they haven't res- resolved how much that would be or 
or the extent of it, but in some cases they want to abolish it altogether. Yeah, well, but we've got to do something with the business. So to answer your question, it's not the best they can do in my view. What, do, you, do you not think it's the best they can do today with the people that are there? No, I don't. I think if they slash the corporate rate and leave the rest of us alone, that would go through and that would go through quickly. All right, Clayton, thanks for your call, my friend. It's Friday, so we celebrate you and the country.
Gates officially over the weekend begins right now. Listen to this. The government's closed. Ooh, goody. We salute our armed forces, police officers, firefighters, and emergency personnel. Good night, Spritey. Good night, Griffey. Good night, Pepsi. Good night, Smokey. Good night, Zelda. Get Al-Qaeda. Get the Taliban. Get Hezbollah. Get Hamas. Get ISIS. Get all those cockroaches. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you on Monday. God bless each and every one of you.